Still on for my mama. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kenyon Solana Froshi, and this is The Now, where young people aren't just the future, we are the now. Today I'm talking to Eva Lewis, co-founder of the activist group Youth for Black Lives and founder of the Eye Project, an initiative to humanize intersectionality. Um, let's just start by talking about, like, why do you do what you do? The oh. work that you do. <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> um, why do I do what I do? Um, I'm a doer generally. So when I'm upset about something, I kind of just have to fix it. I don't like, I'm not a, a person to be content with the situation. Like, I just don't like to be uncomfortable. So I'm like trying to figure out how to navigate all types of situations. And it just so happens that I'm a black woman and I'm Whoa. also queer. <laughs> and so like, I'm mad oppressed. And so those are all very uncomfortable situations. And because I'm uncomfortable and I don't want to be oppressed, I'm trying to fix it so that I can chill or at least feel like I'm not being content. Like if I'm going to have to live this life under a system that is literally like trying to kill me, I might as well like fight it and feel yeah. like less like complacent. That's awesome. <laughs> um, a lot of the work that you do is centered around intersectional feminism and like inclusivity and feminism. So for listeners who don't know what these terms mean, could you define or describe them in your own words and then talk about how they became a part of your life, how you first got introduced to these ideas? So um, intersectional feminism was founded by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, side note, I just interviewed her, which is like Moment of That's a lifetime. So cool. Moment of a lifetime. We're gonna link to the interview where you can find it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be out soon. So, um now I have a better understanding of what it is. <laughs> so literally like she was saying she literally thought of intersectional feminism because of like her her um place as a black woman. Like she's like, dang, like I'm experiencing all of these experiences. Like some of them are sexist, some of them are racist, or there was an, she was talking about in her TED talk an um an incident with a black woman and this black woman didn't get a job and the black woman told the the um, workplace you're like being prejudiced and they're like no we have black people here we have women here but all the black people were men and yeah. all the women were white and so like she talks about how our intersections can kind of overlap to create one type of identity that can be oppressed in its own way and intersectional feminism basically acknowledges all the ways in which you are oppressed and not like them individually but how they kind of come together to form like the unique way in which you can be oppressed by a system so how did you what did you did you first like read about this or did you hear about it from friends <laughs> like mm -hmm. so um, my school has an organization called Peyton organization of women which I'm now co-leader of and um, I started going to the club sophomore year and I learned everything there like literally <laughs> I like I always was like pro like women's rights or whatever. I didn't know what feminism was, you know, like the whole idea of urban feminism where you kind of just like are like girls rock. Like we do what we do. We do what we want. Like I was all about that as a young person, because um, like when you have grandparents from the south and stuff, everyone doesn't know what to do. Um, in that space. It was truly diverse, like in terms of sexuality, gender identification, race, like age, everything. And everyone was able to relate to a situation uniquely based on those identities and it really put intersectional feminism into perspective for me and I kind of became attached because I get frustrated. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the backstory of Youth for Black Lives and how that organization was founded and began? Yeah, so it was an accident, low-key. <laughs> so, um, my friend Maxine, my friend now, but we weren't even friends at the time. So she was like, I want to do a protest. And so she talked to this other girl and they put out a poster. It was like, that's all they did. They put out a poster like, we're meeting up here. We're having a sit-in and a march and it's going to be lit. No, it was just a sit-in at the time, I think. And I saw it because I had um, helped a little bit with the CPS protest that happened last year under New Dallas. And um, I was like, oh, you need help? And she was like, yeah, we need help. And then somebody else, Natalie Bray, was like, you need help <laughs> so we do we, I was just like we should start group chat and so it was like four of us and we literally had three days wow. after 24 hours we decided we were going to add a march and we yeah. added we were trying to come 
we started trying to write press releases because we got in Dallas's help to write a press release. Um, no one knew, no one, none of them knew we had needed a press release. I was like, wait, we need a press release. <laughs> so we had to do that. Yeah. Um, we had to come up with like who we wanted to perform because we're all artists in a way and we wanted speakers, we wanted poets. And so we had to figure that out. We had to figure out who was going to hand out tape for the sit in if we went to be silent. We had to figure out how we're going to get water. How we're, it's hot. It was hot yeah. that day. It was like 90 degrees, the hottest day of the summer. And we and all black. We put all black on the flyer. It was a mess. But um <laughs> like that's what happened. And then twenty four hours before the protest, um, Rachel Williams from BYP one hundred was like, Y'all need help? And we were like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. And she's on the phone contacting everybody and she's like, You need lawyers and we're like, What? And so we have to get on the phone and like get lawyers and medics and it was a lot going on and we were 16 and 17 at the time and we were all struggling but we did it and there were like 2,000 people not a single arrest which made history yeah and we crossed over the um the Chicago River yeah the bridge, and they yeah. never let anyone go past there but we were like we we had set 2,000 people down at that intersection and they were watching and I was literally talking back and forth with the officer the lead officer and he was like no 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 and i kept going i said they're not gonna get up and you could see the 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 crowd go like blocks back yeah we blocked we were blocking some of everything and like we made cnn like they were hovering over like they're just sitting here and i'm like because they're not letting us move i'm not turning (laughs) around what you think this is they couldn't fight me i was like 17 you know and we all go to like select enrollment schools and it's unfortunate we acknowledge our privilege like people look at you different based on where you go and so we had all this clout they weren't going to do anything and we were able to do that and it took off so well it just like really took off um on a lot of media we made headlines everywhere um rookie magazine i wrote that's when i started writing for teen vogue because um they wanted me to write about that story um it was really wild and it was a life-changing moment and we weren't trying to become an organization until we were like oh we should make a twitter because we trended on twitter like number one on and um some dude who came went to the protest decided to make a twitter in our name and we were like hold on (laughs) that's what happened and it was then because we were like oh we need this name and when we solidified that twitter handle like we finally got it back we had to negotiate with this person they were wild when we did that that's when we were like we should just be an organization it was super random super random and so um we had another protest in august um we started trying to do advocacy work because we didn't just want to be activists we wanted to be advocates as well uh and we were able to miraculously pull off that meeting in less than 24 hours with superintendent eddie johnson principal of mayor's high school and alderman o'shea um after the city was basically begging us not to protest we said we won't protest if we have this meeting they were like they were shook they were super shook because <laughs> we were in this meet we we're in this room we we're just like with our parents you know that was side eye. It was it was a lot of side eye. Yeah, a lot of side eye. So yeah, that's cool. that's like an amazing. That's like fate. Like everything just coming together at the right moment. It was really funny. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh okay. <laughs> Can you talk about what the difference is between an activist and an advocate? Because sometimes people think the two are the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I spoke at the United Nations for the first time in March, and that's we had to do like a boot camp before we like were able to be in there. And they taught us the difference between an advocate, an ally, and an activist. But they're like they're all working towards the same stuff, but everyone just has different roles. So the activist is the person who was bringing attention towards the issue on the street, um, doing art. It can be your activism isn't linear. Activism can be through a lot of like activism manifests itself in different ways, you know. And so the activist brings attention. The advocate um, builds off of that attention and energy and takes it to the people of power, takes it to the boardrooms, takes it to um, – it doesn't even have to always be reformism. It can just be like I'm, a, I'm bringing it directly to you. Like activism is indirectly to you. You're going to see it. We want you to see it from a distance. Advocacy is like I'm coming into your space and I'm saying, listen – the ally is the person who is not affected by the issue, but stands in solidarity, especially for the safety of others. So Youth for Black Lives, the reason we were powerful is because we go to all these selective enrollment schools. We called our white friends and we said, listen, 
Like, every time it's only black people, stuff goes down. We need them to know that we're all together. And at our protest, there were banners that said Asian Americans with black lives, um, hijabis with black lives. It was a lot of different types of people out there, like Chicanx people with black lives. And um, we called all these allies out here so that we would be safe and that we would be solid. And so, like, allies kind of, like, formed the barrier wall. Allies are like, it's not just a singular issue. We're not going to, like, allow these people to be hurt. Otherwise, we're all going down together. What was your introduction to activism? Like, when I think about activism, I think about it, like, especially for, like, civil rights and for black liberation, I think about it in a context that's very grounded in the past. Um, and I think a lot of people do. They think, like, oh, I'm an activist for black people, so I... You think of like, oh, like Martin Luther King and like Rosa Parks. And I think a lot of that is sometimes it can be like intentional so that people forget that there are people currently working towards these same goals because these issues aren't resolved. So where did you I mean, it seems like it was kind of spontaneous. Did you ever think about activism as like a route for you before the creation of Youth for Black Lives? Yes, I was an activist before for sure. Um, I mean, the Art Project in itself is an activism through our organization. Um like I said before, activism isn't necessarily linear, but the first time that I was in a space um, with activists and I felt like I was somewhat involved um, was in eighth grade. My mom took me to a protest um, after, see, I know it was for Trayvon Martin, but I can't really remember if it was after the verdict or before, but I know it was during that time. She just took me because it was a church doing one and they, they went down Michigan Avenue and it was it was youth and parents, so it was a safe type of environment. They put all the kids in the front, and then the parents were trailing behind to protect. And so she brought me to that, and um, that was the first time I really saw, like, the people uniting. Because I, I never, like, like, before you go to a school up north or downtown, if you're in Chicago, Chicago's so segregated, you don't really, like, go downtown. So I was never in a space where I could see people protesting anything, just because everything happens to be so centralized. But that was the first time that I, A, saw be like participated so it was cool yeah that's cool um what's a typical day like for you fitting in activism art going to a selective enrollment high school that's kind of competitive like really competitive just like okay let's see let's see hmm should I run through my day sure yeah sure I wake up at five in the morning I'm like screaming on the (laughs) yeah um (laughs) I wake up at five in the morning and I have to be out of my house by like six thirty. Um, takes me about an hour to get to school on the on CTA. Yeah. Um, get to school hopefully on time. And the day I have to like meditate on the bus because white mm. people are wild and I have to listen to good music. Yeah. Like uplifting music because going into a predominantly white institution especially as a high schooler when people still like people have lost their marbles in college but people don't even have marbles to lose in high school you know so like you have you have to can i curse on this show sure <laughs> like you have to like dodge the bullshit like left and right left and right <laughs> left and right so um i do that I go through my day and i actually have an independent study so I, I have like an hour and a half every other day to work on the air project which is really helpful really helpful Honestly, really helpful. So um, during that time, I run errands all around the school. My school is very supportive of me. Um, and so they let me use, like, a lot of resources. I'll be popping into random classes, like, can I use this? And they'll be like, yeah. I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. At, in this year, it's been really nice. Um, I do that. And then after school, so basically, like, I have slam poetry until 5. And just depending on the day, um, sometimes I get asked to do certain things. So I might have to run somewhere after school. Um, to speak or to work on a project or something because I make myself somewhat accessible. So, um, yeah, and then I go home. I live an hour away, so, like, CTA, and I go to sleep early. All right, then. Um, What were some of the biggest challenges you faced when you guys began community organizing and Youth for Black Lives? Um. One thing I noticed when I was at one of the protests over the summer is that people have a problem being led by (laughs) young black femmes, which is just wild. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
So at the second protest, this dude walked up to me and he was literally like, you have to speak lower. You have to rate like, like raise your posture and put your chin down like this. I was like, what the heck? He was literally over here trying to make me like try to be a man. And I'm like, boy, how's that going to work out? It's not going to work out. That was traumatizing. And I wrote I wrote a poem about it. And I, that's what the, the poem I performed at the UN when I went the second time. But ever since the first time, even in the midst of the first protest, like, people did not want to be led by girls. All these boys, like, were up here like, you do this, that, and the other. Um, you, I like, I don't trust you. Like, I don't know why you're here. And we're like... You came to this protest. Also, like... You didn't take the initiative. Right. This would be you in this position if you took the initiative. How you gonna get mad at me for trying? Makes no sense. None whatsoever. And, like, we face that all the time. I face that in all sorts of situations. People are either upset that I'm black or upset that I'm a girl. I'm like, come on now. Get over it. Yeah. So do you just have to, like... You just have to deal with it. Like, you just have to... What else am I going to do? I can't, like, do anything else, yeah, you know? You just kind of persevere and, like, be comfortable in yourself and know that, like, you're not a burden and that you're entitled to this space as well. And remember that when people say stuff, like, when that bullshit flies, dodge it. Yeah. Left, right. Right, left. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of talked about the process of organizing that first protest or set in March in over the summer. Um, how do you feel, like, before the start of an event? It probably has changed since you've done more, like, you've organized more events now, but how do you usually feel, like, right before something starts? Anxious. Yeah. Always. Always. 100%. Like, I have, there's, there's a period. No, when I'm in the zone, like, when I'm, like, having an event, even if it's for the art project, like, I had to eliminate screaming, like, when I have something going on that I am in charge of, like, people know, do not walk up to me. Like, even if you're there to support me, don't tell me you're here until after I'm done, you know? Like, let me let me live in that moment because if you walk up to me and you mess with the, like, the energy and the vibe, that is it. Like, I have to be very concentrated because I'm trying to keep myself, like, centered um, and controlling my, like, I have anxiety, and so controlling my anxiety in situations where a general person would be anxious yeah. is very hard because then it's, like, anxiety times 12 million. And so, like, I just have to do self-care even in the moments. Like, self-care for me might be breathing or, like, not talking to people that I don't have to talk to. Yeah. Do you think that there's any, I guess, character traits that you have that have helped you in your activism uh, I'm very conscious about language, which is one thing that um people say kind of stands out. Like, I don't say ableist words that people don't think are ableist. Um, like, I'm always inclusive of multiple genders. Um, I'm making a conscious effort to ask people what their pronouns are when I meet them. Like, I'm just, I kind of, like, have trained myself to be, like, inherently inclusive, um, which makes spaces much more safe for people that are even coming into the space in which I'm leading. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's, like, really important when you're leading a space for people to be a part of. Yeah, and it's, like, a, it's kind of a constant interrogation of, like, the language that you're used to or, like, the, the sayings or the actions that you do all the time and aren't even aware are hurting other people. So, yeah, that's really important. How has... Mm, how is the... How have the results of the election um, affected <laughs> how you look at, like, your activism and the impact of your work? Uh, the election definitely hasn't affected how, like, the effect. Because the gag is... Ooh. <laughs> the mic just almost fell, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the gag is that um, black people have been in, like, this position for forever. This isn't new. Like, a lot of other minorities are like, oh, my God, like, this is this is the time in which I am about to, like, feel the most oppressed, like, the government affecting me the most. But black people have been going through the same stuff. It's just a new face, if that makes sense. It's still going to be the same struggle. We're still going to have to persevere. We've always survived, always. So if I was doing activism before Trump, 
the activism is still for my freedom and I still want to need that freedom when Trump's there, it doesn't make me less free. It's the same thing. Like, he's just the president. Yeah. In the same way that Obama didn't make me more free, you know? Yeah. What's the most satisfying thing about organizing? Ooh, satisfying. I feel I love feeling productive. Productivity is, like, such a great feeling. Like, when, when you feel like you're, like, contributing towards general change and helping people, seeing how your work affects people, and then, like, inspiring people my age to also get up and do stuff. I love it. Like, that's such a satisfying feeling for people to say that, like, your, like, energy and your spirit has had an impact on theirs. That's so, like, comforting and so motivating for me. Yeah. Um, I want to, you, you mentioned it a couple times, and I, I never really explained it, but can you talk about the I Project? Um, it's, like, yeah, an initiative you started to humanize intersectionality, and what do you guys do, and, like, when did you start it, or why did you start it? So the I Project is an initiative to humanize intersectionality through political discussion, art, and um, general community outreach. I started it after I made a short film when I was in France. Um, I made a short film called like Redefining Opportunity, and I had a screening for it at Chicago Cultural Center. And people were like, where are you going to drop it? What are you going to do after this? What's the next move? And I was like, hold up. Y'all expect me to have a next move? Like, it was like my first little thing. I was like, okay, well, people people, people want things. What do I do? And I was like, I should just start a website thing. It was super spontaneous, and it was ugly. Like, it was on, like, you know, like, WordPress before you buy, like, a package, and it just looks yeah. gross. Like, it was like that. And I was like, wow, Eva, way to go, way to go. So um, I did that. And, yeah, like... It's kind of just taken off. Like, I wrote articles. I've interviewed lots of people. Um, I had a a visual campaign. There were, like, people of different... <laughs> there were people of different um, skin tones and body sizes. And um, it was it was really good. Like, I brought people together. And then there were people who made shirts, like, painted on shirts and everything all around the city I brought it together editors photographers makeup artists it was like a real coalition of people to work on this project and I was like wow I should do more of this and so um the next thing I did was the next big thing was a lemonade screening then I had an intergenerational panel of black women the oldest being 49 the youngest being 18 for that panel so we like it was free everyone watched the screening I sold food I sold lemonade it was cute it was real cute. That's cute and um and then people like heard all these black women say like how it affected them or if it didn't affect them and it was really interesting to see how like the 18 year old is not content because we're all like we want trans inclusivity and we want this that and the other but the 49 year old was like this is I would have never imagined this you know so it's like it's like levels of content like shifting like, as you go down the line and that was like really interesting and then um what else did I do? That's a lot. That's really impressive. Oh, I did another event. Okay. Um, there was a Rocky Horror. Um, oh, yeah. There was a Rocky Horror picture show screening, um, and it was basically free. It was suggested donation. But, like, I had food. I had ordered pizza, and it was a lot of queer people. And because um, it was really – I didn't tell people it was targeted towards queer people, but it really was because Halloween can be such a dangerous time for many people. Um such an offensive time where people like dress up and like especially trans people just people really come out of the bags for certain days of the year and I wanted to have an event where people like with a staple that is important to people where people could be like comfortable and safe and so somebody came out in drag dressed as Rocky it was wild and um I had photographers and people I had I had also like gotten costumes donated so I had a rack of costumes and makeup artists there and everyone was like glammed up and it was really cool um to see people come together and people feel comfortable in a space where no one knew each other it was really nice and so I'll definitely be doing more of that um and for the future like I'm working on an event to um raise money for CPS schools that have been underfunded um and I've gotten some people to donate time to perform so no none of the artists will be paid because all the money will go straight towards buying resources so it'll be like a um it's completely non-profit completely non-profit event and um i also like have i'm developing a staff and also um we're working on a collective under the i project full of like um women and femmes who will be doing cool stuff too so yeah 
um, a lot of the work done in the I project is like focused on where art and activism can intersect. Like you said before, it's not necessarily like a linear thing. There's not one definition of activism. Um, what do you think is the role of? Just check your opinion on the role of artists within like an activist movement. The role of artists. Um, art makes things relatable and accessible because activism. Activism. Um, can activism in itself, like in terms of people on the street, can be linear, either really academic or really radical, you know, like, and people don't always know how to react to all those emotions. You're either talking about oppression, like using the words oppression and inclusivity and intersectional, and people are like, what does it even mean, you know, like, because in the same way that education isn't linear, the same way that um, people are are more privileged than other people you have to make things um accessible to people who are less privileged because those are the people who are trying to free as well and um radical activism can sometimes seem so dangerous you know like when we think about people who have been radical in the past um black panther party or people who have been radical and academic like angela davis um people are scared of what can happen if you speak out but art is a way for people to share information and, and like, and interpret it however you want it to, to interpret it. Like, when you're watching a movie, there isn't a paragraph at the end of the movie, like, this movie was about, you know? Like, and there, when you're listening to a song, there isn't, like, and um, you're supposed to know this from the song, and you know, like, or a painting. Like, even the boxes that say what a painting is about, it's not, like, definition, you know? Everything is, like, wow, I'm slowly being able to, like, experience the pathos from this piece of work. And accessibility is a part of inclusivity, which a lot of people don't really understand. And that's why I think art is such an important component of that whole cycle. Yeah. How do you decide what events you want to do in the I Project? You just, like, are chilling, and you're like, hmm, this would be really cool. And then you just... Yeah. No, for real. <laughs> like, like literally, I'm random. I'm really random. I'll just be chilling out. And I'll be like, ooh, that'd be cool. Or, like, something. I'll get, like, upset. It's Every time I get upset, I think of something. Like, my self-care for myself is productivity. So when I get upset, I think of a project. And then I'm like, yeah. I want to do it. And everyone else is always like, this would be cool if I did this and they don't do it. Like, I'm, I'm the type to really, like, do it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I came, I remember coming up with lemonade eating dinner. I was like, I should do this. It was in April. Then I had it in June. Yeah. In Rocky Horror, my friend was, I was like, it'd be so fun if we went to see Rocky Horror. But it was at midnight. And we're talking about accessibility, living on the south side, not being able to, like, get a ride home. Like, it's always so late and, like, not possible for me to participate in. And we were like, we should make an accessible one. I had it at 6 o'clock. It was lit. For real. Like, people were able to come out who live in areas that, they wouldn't be able to go to, like, the gentrified ones, you know? Yeah. I don't know why I said gentrified, because the original Rocky Horror is all white. Actually, I noticed three black people in it. Three. Wow. There were three in it, and I didn't even peep. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty wild, honestly. Like, they're there. Yeah, they're, you gotta, yeah. You have to, like, when it comes to old movies, you have to really watch. And, like, the third time you'll see them. They'll be, they weren't even light-skinned. They were just there. Oh, um, <laughs> that's like that's pretty cool. Another question I was gonna ask is like how you well, I'm not how you built a community around the I project. What this is mean? like a logistical thing. Like how did you get people to know about it? Like just for people who are looking. Oh, to like advertising. Yeah, advertising. Okay, okay. Uh, let me think. So, um, it was rough because. See the way Chicago um, is is situated. A lot of projects don't get found out about if you're not in social certain like certain social scenes, and so it's very hard to like put things out there or to get people interested because everything kind of moves with the wave. And the art project wasn't necessarily a wave until I became like bec until I got clout. Like the art project wasn't seen by more people, um, and so that was difficult. But I I first social media is important like for our generation social media is very important and useful i made an instagram and i made a twitter and um on the instagram i was just posting like things that i was putting on the website like creating images editing them putting text up you know like layering stuff making it aesthetic -y. 
And aesthetic is also, like, a really touchy thing because, like, it's very hard to keep up an aesthetic. But I'm trying to do that, too. Like, that's another thing I'm working on. But um, I submitted, like, I would email um, different people. So I did it for, to Art Ho Collective. Like, you know, they're like, oh, we'll put stuff on. And so when I sent them my nonprofit, I got, like, 200 followers. So that was when I got a really large follower count um, because it was a it was a platform where people were looking, people were interested. So you have to really target your audience. Like, sometimes you just you just don't want to um, send things to people who have a lot of followers, but you want to send to people who have a lot of followers interested in the thing that you're doing. And um, people, we have, like, internal oppression. Internalized oppression includes, like, not feeling like you can reach out to people. And I really had to get over that, like, it's okay if you reach out to these people, even though they might seem, like, inaccessible and famous. So when I did the Kaleidoscope visual campaign, I was like, I'm going to be extra. I made a press release for it. It was, like, really extra, but I sent it to all these organizations that I really admired. And a few of them, like, put um, put the link and stuff on their thing, and it was cool. So that's, like, you have to really, like, overcome that whole, like, this person is famous. Like, you see somebody on Twitter, they got 30,000 followers. You're thinking, oh, like, you know, like, I can't do that. DM them. I did. I do that a lot, too, even for Youth for Black Lives. When we want we wanted, um, our protests retweeted, we we um DM'd a lot of people. We DM'd DeRay, and he was, like, all for it. Like, he does it every time now. Like, you really have to reach out to people that might seem inaccessible because you never know who people want to support. The reason people don't support other people isn't necessarily because they don't want to. It's because they don't know you exist. You have to make sure people know you exist. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, Do you think there's anything particularly, like, what is particularly special about the moment we're in right now in feminism and in civil rights activism in 2017 like special 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 I don't I can't necessarily speak for society I don't I don't really like it's too early it's like what January 6th I can't really speak on the move or just 2016 2017 I I still can't speak on the move I have no idea what (laughs) the the move low-key is like everyone wants to be an activist but no one wants to do the work like that's the the low-key move the activism has become a a trend which becomes hard to notice who are your allies like it blurs some lines that's the real move and that's not a productive move but a productive move is that a lot of women of color are learning about womanism that is a productive move i just learned about womanism and it's lit and i identify as a womanist and intersectional feminist let's define womanism because it's all it's awesome yeah womanism is um this idea founded by the great alice walker Woo! She's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, and it's in a book called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Um, the first page, I think, is the definition of womanism, her definition of it. Yeah, the first page, yeah. And um, it's basically, at the time of womanism, Kimberly Crenshaw was still trying to figure out what to call intersectional feminism. Intersectional feminism wasn't, like, there yet. It was just womanism. And I think they're about six years apart. 83 was womanism. 89 was um, intersectional feminism. Um... And Alice Walker was like, womanism is everything that feminism is not. Womanism is the way in which women of color are affected by sexism, um, the way in which people of disabilities are affected, um, queer women, trans women. She was inclusive of every single thing, all classes, except white women. So a white woman cannot be a womanism. It was literally like, it wasn't even a counter movement. It was like, well, these are all the people you left out. Because even in itself, feminism, like, accounted for queer women. I don't know necessarily about trans women. I'm not that educated on that. But um, it accounted for different types of white women, but no women of color. It didn't account for how, like, that double oppression, that intersectionality. Um, And then Kimberly Crenshaw created intersectionality because it even delves more into, like, that whole idea of, like, what things are, you know? And it's like, like I explained intersectionality before, but that was a second step. It wasn't even a counter in either, you know? Yeah. Um, who or what inspires you in terms of either their work ethic or just like the way they live? This can be a fictional character or a real person. Oh my God, I love Princess Nokia so much. I oh my God. love, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, I love I just, her so. She's much. Just so she makes you feel so powerful and important, and she, she like, just and she struggled. She's just, 
Exactly. She's transparent with it too. Like she doesn't pretend she's like so she's honest. Been on it. Exactly. She's like, listen, like I know struggle, I know oppression, I know what it feels like, and I'm up here, and I worked for it, and I'm gonna let you know how I worked for it. And she has this thing called Smart. And she Girls. makes it accessible for the, everyone. I was yeah. listening to her podcast, the new episode, the new season of Smart Girls Club this morning, and she's literally like. Everyone said 2016 was a bad year, but my 2016 was bomb. And she said, this is all the stuff I did. And I was like, low-key me too. Like, my first half of 2016 was rough, but my second half was blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. Like, I have been blessed back to back. I've never experienced this much abundance, you know? And, like, she, like, being unapologetic about her brujeria, unapologetic about Afro-Latinx heritage, unapologetic about class, where she lives. She doesn't even live large. Like, she's chilling. She's really chilling, really being humble, really on the grind, being accessible when she tours. She was here in... Free my- concerts in Northwestern, right? She had a free concert. I don't know if it was free. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, was saying, I, I think don't it was know. free. You think it was free? Yeah. Okay. But I know, like, um, my friend's girlfriend opened for her. I think we know the same person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then like my and then my friend like wrote about her for um for um a paper and she hung out with her. Princess he was like, Oh, let's hang out. Yeah. Like she makes herself so accessible to people and she wants to help. She wants to be there, you know? She doesn't want to be over. She wants to be like which with you. She wants to uplift everybody. And it's like in her inclusivity, you know? She's light skinned, kinda. Like she's got that hair, but you see the picture she takes. She did a photo set called Staircase. I just saw on Smart Girls Club, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, on their Instagram. And like she's inclusive. She sees beauty in everyone. All of her videos. All of her videos. Her videos. Hundred percent inclusive of every type of woman of color. And that is wild. Like it's I, incredible. She has that song, um I don't know what it's called, but the It's Mine. It's mine, I bought it. About the hair? Yeah, about the hair. And she just, she lists out all these women of color and all their different hairstyles. And she's like, I love you all. And I'm just, she's just. She's, she's, oh my God. Gee, you don't know. If you listen, we're going to. We're really, we're we're, 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 in our hear this, Princess Nokia, we love you and we're just grateful. And speaking of like accessibility, like I look up to her so much. I write for Teen Vogue now, which is a blessing. Like I'm on the payroll. It is a real blessing. Real blessing. I'm really about to try to interview her. Like, that is, yeah. like, trying to figure out who is going to help you get to where you want to be. Like, I never thought I'd be able to interview Kimberly Crenshaw, ever. It was a reach. Was that also for Teen Vogue? Yeah, yeah, that was a reach. When I tell you that was a reach, that was a reach. For real a reach. She emailed me back two months later. I was like, oh, she just, you know, I was like, I'm not important. And then God was like, listen, like, I'm telling y'all, like, people that you look up to reach out to them and then i had the interview and then we talked half an hour after the the initial interview about life like, and then she wow. was she basically invited me to come up and like meet her when i go to pen that's so cool <laughs> we have to like breathe we just had like a yeah breath. we had a that was kind of emotional <laughs> that was intense i love her she's like, just so she makes me i already said that she makes me feel powerful and she makes she me makes feel me like she makes me feel so possible yeah that's it so oh my gosh like you know people empowering is one thing but making that shit accessible like showing that path being like listen like i was listening her podcast this morning she's literally like i don't know if it was her life but she was reading something i think it was she was like i have been a stepmom i have like been married i started having sex at 14 years old she if you watch her um her documentary on Fader, yeah. she her mom died and she was in foster care she's been through abuse and back she's been through everything and that she's used it to enhance herself. And she's used it to build her spirit and then help other people build their spirits. And she even makes her buhedia like, accessible. Like, she has healing spaces where she herself does, like, buhedia to cleanse other people in New York. Yeah. Like, that is wild. And it's everybody can come. All you got to do is, like, wear white. Or she'll provide clothes. She's raw. She really is, like... I have nev I've never heard of it. Like never heard of someone being that raw. And it makes me like wanna go above and beyond. It makes me feel like like I'm in this womanism collective right now. The one I was kinda talking about. Like we have a, a group chat, it's like fourteen people and it was really random said about a week ago and you should join it. You should really be part of it. But like it's really lit. And someone this girl I'm a I'm a um say her name. Her name is Kara and she was like, Be the rupture. Yeah. And that's like, 
that that yeah. really resonated with all of us like because i was like oh i can't dress this way like i want i want to have an aesthetic and i'm like you have of, to oh my god like you be the rupture oh my god be the rupture right you have to wow you, like I'm, it's like oh no one's ever done it i'm having a moment over here right that's just that resonated with me and you know, like that really resonated with all of us like you be the rupture you don't see it you do it you don't know how people will react they'll react to you like you be that rupture you be that first you be that disruption and that is like, don't that resonate, G? It does. It just, now I'm That's like, such a powerful, like, it's such a powerful yeah. thing. It's like a simple statement, but it's it's really powerful. It, yeah. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> we out here. Yeah. Um, this is like just a, another like logistics thing, but like, do you have a favorite environment to do work in that you like? feel most comfortable or do you just kind of make it work to do work it depends on the work what type of work be specific organizing organizing so i me and the girls we just started renting um or like you know reserving rooms here at the harold washington library washington library to study and when we're in the zone like, we have our laptop, and we have our pre-planned notes, and we have our, like, printed out. We we read a reading. We read um, um, The Master's Tools Will Not Dismantle the Master's House or something yeah. like that. And it's by Audre Lorde. And we read that reading together. And, like, we're in this space, and we're all learning together, and we're all working and, like, being very diligent with our work. Like, that's when I feel. I feel so good because it's, like, I'm not just like being productive on my own like getting stuff done but i'm like being productive in a communal way like these are ideas colliding and i don't have a thought but someone else has a thought and it's just a it's just like you walk into the room you feel the energy like we out here trying to talk about the difference between activism and reform and then we start getting into sociology like latent functions and manifest functions like it just starts going like yeah. the, being in a space with smart black women is just like i feel the most i feel the most safe and the most productive when I'm with other people who value safety and productivity and who are somewhat representative of me in some way. Like, to be able to, like, it's almost like looking in a mirror and seeing, like, what you can be and what you are being, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you think you've seen yourself grow since beginning the I Project and co-founding Youth for Black Lives? Growth, growth, growth. Um... The I Project has definitely helped me realize that activism isn't linear because I wasn't really calling it like activism at first. It was just like art and like we out here writing. But it was like I really realized that activism is any way that, sh- that, that makes social change, you know? And so that whole idea of like something not being linear definitely stemmed from like the I Project. And the whole idea that people can come together and be communal stemmed from the I Project because like it's it's been a lot of love in that situation and like in that um, environment. Youth for Black Lives has helped me grow because I have learned so much. I learned a lot about the city. I've learned a lot about activism in the city, activism in other cities, how stuff works, how to account for the safety of yourself and the people you're leading. Like all of just those logistics. Like you don't you don't find stuff out online. You just, you can't. Yeah. Like who would have known you needed lawyers? I still can't get over that. That still shakes me. Yeah. Um, so the rhetoric around Chicago this last election cycle has been really frustrating, really stressful to think about the way that the presidential candidates have spoken about Chicago. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to ask on a positive note, what is your what are your favorite things about Chicago, about the city and about your neighborhood? Favorite things about Chicago, the city, and my neighborhood? The first two are the same. Yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not <laughs> wrong. I was like, why does this make sense to me? Um, I live in South Shore. And um, Michelle Obama lived down the street from my house and went to the school down the street from my house. I didn't go there, but she did. And I think that resonates in itself, like... The first lady, this eloquent woman, the most productive first lady ever, in my opinion, 
bomb woman, black woman in the White House grew up in space. Like, you're not confined to the space you grew up in, but also, like, you have to uplift the space you grew up in. And, like, I have a lot of pride in South Shore because I wouldn't be the person that I am if I had not lived in that space. I wouldn't be humble. I wouldn't know. I'm gr- I'm grateful for my oppression. I'm grateful for uh, my boundaries because I feel like oppression really helps people appreciate. And oppression really helps people have a drive to help other people. Um, what I love about Chicago, I love... We're... You know, like, how everyone's, like, always, like, black Twitter is, like, great. Like, I feel like black Twitter definitely started in Chicago. Like, our vernacular right. is great. Um, we're so we're so good at making stuff up to rejoice about and be together. Like, we have so much slang. It's wild. Like, I talk to people from New York, and they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like great. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Um, I really enjoy our culture. Black culture, that is. I mean, everybody else kind of just appropriates, but it is what it is, you know. Um, I, like, it's really rough being from Chicago because it's so segregated, but I appreciate so many different spaces. Like, I appreciate the fact that Back of the Yards is in existence. I appreciate um, the fact that High Park is in existence. High Park is a is a downtown for everywhere else. Um, I don't appreciate gentrification, though. I appreciate, um, <laughs> I appreciate, uh, Somebody was just yelling, y'all. <laughs> I, I, I just appreciate, like, each neighborhood's characteristics, regardless of gun violence, regardless of, like, what the news says about it, because there is some upliftance. Um, my cousins live in Englewood, and people, the news will never cover it. Once a year, all the gang, like, the gang leaders set beef aside, and they put their money together and have a 4th of July celebration, fireworks show, a whole fireworks show, food for the, f- the community, holding off blocks, G blocks music like a house will be just blasting music and the whole block can hear it and there's a professional fireworks show like it's like nice they they have the fireworks lined up on a field like they have like done it to the t and these are people that you know um do the things they do and it's kind of a reminder that people don't do gang violence because they want to it's a mechanism of survival and that we do need those moments of black joy and that really changed my perspective of that neighborhood and a lot of neighborhoods because stuff like that in Chicago does happen. It's not hate. The hate is not the root of gang violence. Oppression is. Yeah. That's. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you hope to accomplish with the work that you do? Not necessarily like end goal, but. An end goal with the knowledge that you, like, you might not get there, but, like, the work that you're doing is. So, goals for myself? Or um, goals for? Goals for the, it's, like, the I Project and Youth for Black Lives. Youth for Black Lives. Youth for Black Lives and the I Project. I need people, young people, to be like, I want to do this because I'm about to leave. Um, Three of us in Youth for Black Lives are about to go to college, you know? Like, we need, my goal, my current goal is for people to be interested enough to keep stuff going. You know, I project too. I have people younger who are interested, um, and I need people to be working on stuff here while I'm working on the same stuff there, like Philly. You know, um, general goals for the I project. I want, I want it to make things accessible in the way that we have been failed by a lot of like movements that claim inclusivity and aren't like princess nukia like that accessibility like the fact that there are podcasts and like different stuff like i want versatility um in order to be accessible um and i'm gonna get a doctorate degree and so i'm gonna do both i'm gonna be educated and I'm going to be doing activism, like Angela and Kimberlay. Yeah. Even though Kimberlay told me, she, Ms. Dr. Crenshaw was like, it's hard. And I was like, it's okay. It's fine. I'm going to do it. It's okay. <laughs> she was like, are you sure? I was like, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm sure. She's yeah. Like, she's like, okay. Okay. I was like. What would you say to someone who's interested in getting involved in activism and they didn't know where to start? Didn't know where to start. Yeah. First thing is, never settle for being under someone. Don't let somebody co-opt you. 
I'm not going to talk about specifics, but do not let people co-opt you. If somebody says, oh, we want to work with you, be weary. Be accessible, but also be inaccessible. You do not want people to take over your work and ruin your end plan. Activism is tricky like that because there are already so many organizations. People just be like, join us. Don't join. Ask how you can be parallel. Ask how you can come in and work amongst and not under. That's how you have to figure stuff out. And you have to figure out what organization is for you, what's not. Read mission statements. You have to read those mission statements. you got to figure out, like, where people are at on that. Yeah. Um, it's been very awesome talking to you. You're, like, knowing. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning a lot, honestly. Um, and just to finish up, like, what should listeners, like, look out for in the future with you? Youth for Black Lives, The Eye Project. Looking out for? Yeah. The Eye Project is about to be back and bussing. I say bussing with like an N and then an apostrophe because it's about to be T. Like we're about to have events. We're about to have accessible events. Um, Definitely going to start working on some projects. Definitely going to use my new resources. I've acquired a lot of resources in this little gap of time. So we're out here for sure. Follow social media at It's The Eye Project. Say louder. <laughs> Follow social media at It's The I Project. I-T-S-T-H-E-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. The website is also It's The I Project.com. And the website is pretty beautiful. <laughs> I have edited it, so it's great. Since the, <laughs> since the first day. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, like, the first day was rough. Yeah. Um, what about Youth for Black Lives? Where can we find that stuff online? This is going to be a harder one. To do. I'm just going to spell this one. It's at, on Twitter, youth, the number four, B-L-K-L-I-V-E-S. Yes. Um, and then is there anything that we're looking out for? The we Eddie Johnson life. thing? Oh, um, January 17th, we have a public meeting with um, Superintendent Eddie Johnson. There are reserve seating. Um, it's at Walter Payton College Prep. And... Um, yeah, come, share your frustration, and look for thing. the event on Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. There's a Facebook event. There's also a flyer. Um, we'll do a better job at circulating that in the next week. But um, yeah, tell people and bring signs. We want y'all to like really show out. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much to everyone in the recording studio and everyone at UMedia. The incredible intro and outro music is the work of John Ursery. You can find him on SoundCloud at John Jones Inc. That's John Jones IMC. The Now Podcast is produced with the help of the Harold Washington Library UMedia program. Thank you. Uh, uh, tell them that the summer mind, hey, hey, I'm gonna need it all the time. Summertime, hey, hey, tell her come.